Welcome to the Consortium Podcast, an academic audio blog of Kepler Education. Kepler is a consortium of independent classical Christian teachers united by a shared vision for student flourishing. I'm Scott Postma, president, and I'm joined by Joffrey Swate, our academic advisor. I'm excited about the theme we'll be unfolding today. I am as well. We're going to be talking about cosmology and education, which seems a little mysterious, doesn't it? Well, I think the question would be, whatever do you mean by cosmology, Scott? Oh, by cosmology, an understanding of the cosmos, right? Understanding what universe we live in and what the universe means and what the universe looks like. So, yeah, we're going to talk about how that relates to education today. And I think a good place for us to start is with a a really well-known book, I think, among classical educators, Norms and Nobility by David Hicks. And he actually doesn't discuss cosmology here. He discusses something else. So total aside before you tell us what that something else is and then work it into cosmology, how amazing is it about classical Christian education? And if you're new to this world, welcome. Here's what's normal talking about nobility. Nobility, We we want your kids to be noble. Right. (laughs) This is a cool little aside. Well, and well, it's not entirely an aside. I mean, although it, it may seem that way here, it's not an aside in the sense that nobility is the goal uh, or a part of the goal of, of classical Christian education, but it's not the goal of modern education, is it? Mm, No. Well, (laughs) I would say that a cog is the visual symbol, a gear of of modern status education particularly. Well, in modern status education too, something like nobility could seem very elitist, couldn't it? Yeah. Anti-democratic almost in some people's minds. (laughs) We're we're democratic about it though. We want all to be noble. That is exactly right. <laughs> so you know what? That wasn't as much of an aside uh, as, as I thought it might have been. Let, let's So yeah, let's get to this quote. Okay. So in uh, the introduction, and by the way, um, the um, this paperback edition that I'm holding is like 40 something dollars. And the, the reason I even bring up the price of the book is it's pretty expensive for a thin little paperback. And yet it's rich and I would have paid that just for the introduction, just for the prologue. Boom. Yeah, it was that good. So in section two, Hicks writes, education at every level reflects our primary assumptions about the nature of man. And for this reason, no education is innocent of an attitude toward man and his purposes. I'm going to go a little bit further. The writer on education who fails to state his view of man at the outset expects to perform some polemic magic. He masks his premises and invites a gullible reader to judge his conclusions on the deceptive merit of a logical deduction. Now, I'm not going to unpack all of this, but it's rich, it's good. And for our purposes today, I want to rephrase that very first sentence and replace man with cosmology or cosmos. And and the reason for that is because man is part of the cosmos, right? He's, he's within it. But I think we can say the same thing about the cosmos. All right. So he says, education at every level reflects our primary assumptions about the nature of the universe. And for this reason, no education is innocent of an attitude toward the cosmos and God's purpose for the cosmos. So you made that change. And 
there is a huge sense in which they are truly interchangeable because the first expression, the original expression of the author is anthropological, right? right? You're making a cosmological statement. What if we said, Scott, that man is the center of the universe, which is absolute heresy from a modernist perspective and half the Christians who just heard that their skin crawled when they heard it. Right. Right. Because there's a reaction, a visceral reaction. Man is the center of the universe. Well, I would push back a little bit and say that depends on what we mean when we say that, right. because there is a sense in which the modern seculars might say, I mean, they'd say the state, you know, um, but, but thinking about man being the center of the universe goes back to the cosmology, the medieval cosmology, mm -hmm. right? That's right. That's what we're talking about. Um, so in, in the medieval cosmology, we had a geocentric world right, or a geocentric universe, right? Yeah. And in our modern world, we realize it's a heliocentric and, and, you know, there could be all kinds of discussions about the Galileo episode and, and all of that. But what's interesting about the medieval cosmos, C.S. Lewis and his discarded image gets into the idea that this medieval cosmos actually tells us something. It's a sort of map about mankind, about his relationship to God. And there's a sense in which he says it's more true than right. what we scientifically, you know, uh, would say about the, the universe today. And it shows the priorities of medieval man, right? right? Man was particularly concerned with knowing his place in a relationship to God. Right. Right. And, you know, the fact is, and let's just say that it's a fact, because we're going to end up talking about the, the, the one true cosmos. There's only one universe. There is. And it's ours. And when I say it's ours, I mean that a man is king of it. Jesus the Christ. Jesus the Christ, the God-man, yes. is the king of this cosmos. And he's, he's still fully human. He always will be. That's right. That's right. So when, when we think about Jesus being, you know, he being the king of the cosmos, that flies directly in the face of what modern thinking, um, not just in education, but, but yeah. modern anthropology. It's a core doctrine right. that you are insignificant, Scott. Right. Of the modern world. Yes, yes absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, and the medieval man, when putting man at the center of the universe, had a, a belief or had a view that it was um, that man not was completely the measure of all things, but he was in the middle of all things. Right. right. Yeah. So he's yeah. lower than the angels, but but he's, you know, he's he's not the measure of all things. I mean, that's where we get ideas like Middle Earth. Right. right? I mean, right. And, and these are notions that pagans danced around. Uh -huh. Right. Uh, but uh, only in Christendom, under a Christian theology, were we, were we really able to to flesh them out more. And what you said about, about how medievals perceived the world and how they had, they had a map of the world, right? Right. And, and a, a mental map, but also like maps that were rendered on paper and we saw them. Um, and when I say world, like I'm just at, at this point, I've thought, you know, about cosmology enough that even the word world is interchangeable with cosmos and universe for me. God so loved the cosmos. cosmos right. Right. But, um, uh, so there was a, a class, uh, there's a class I'm giving called the World of Maps mm -hmm. at Kepler, right? And uh, we had a guest lecturer a few weeks back, and he was showing my students a map uh, of a medieval pilgrimage. Okay, so a map that survives, and we still have it today, and it's a map of a medieval pilgrimage. Was Canterbury on there? Uh, man, I can't remember now. <laughs> I think it started <laughs> in France, but it might have started in England. Uh, it went all the way to the Holy Land, though. Okay. It was a okay. big map. Big map. Now, 
you know, in, in our class, we've been talking about a lot of a lot of things with maps, not just cartography and surveying. It is a science class, but we've been talking a lot about the rhetoric of maps and wow. maps are messages, right? Mm -hmm. Maps say things and they have agendas like anything else. Sure. Right? Nothing is neutral, but also maps have different purposes. And, you know, like you might walk up to a, a trailhead at a state park and there will be a rendering, a visual rendering, a map of where the different trails go and where they start. And those maps are usually not, you might find in a brochure or on a sign, they're not going to be surveying maps. They're not going to be maps that would work for purposes of drawing property lines or taxing people. The map works to get you to the trailhead. Right. And maybe it'll use colors or other symbols to tell you this one will be hard, this one will be easy. That's a real map. And this map that we were looking at of these pilgrimages had all these cities kind of in a row, kind of geographically laid out, geographically completely inaccurate as far as what a modernist would judge a good map as. The city sizes were different. Some were clearly more important cities. Some were less important. They had nothing to do with the commercial or populational importance of each city. They had to do with the purpose of that map, which was pilgrimage sites. So the sites that had like, this is a big deal. This is extra holy or whatever. Like you're a pilgrim. This is like, you're, you're definitely going to want to prioritize this city. That would be bigger. The little pilgrimage, pilgrimage sites that might have been along the way, they were smaller. Right. And so the whole visual of the map was oriented around, well, order of visit, like after this town, then that town. Mm -hmm. But there was no expectation. You don't need to know to turn left here because you're going to be asking people. You'll be in town A and you'll ask someone, how do I get to town B now that I'm done here? You don't need the feet and meters and the, and the, right. the height and elevation of each city. <laughs> exactly. So it was simply it was by order. It was the experience of the pilgrimage. Yep. And. It was like a holiness rating, <laughs> right? And and that was perfect for that map, right? right? And so in, in the medieval cosmology, they had a cosmology that, uh, that told them what they needed to know. Sure, where do I belong in the universe and where is God? And the modern man looks at the universe and isn't asking that same question. Right. They're asking questions about progress and technology right. and, and how do we leverage this and, 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 and ultimately how do we minimize suffering, which is such a poor question to mm -hmm. ask, right? Because it's a map without a center, sure right? The, the map of the universe is, is a map without a center. Nothing is the center, not physically. And, and certainly mankind is not the center. By the way, as an aside, an infinite universe you can choose the center, like right. a physically, a physically infinite universe. The center is whatever you say it is. So what other important things do we know? We know that there's a story, a vast story involving God himself that focuses on the earth and on mankind. Yes. And Lewis says that very thing in Discarded Image, doesn't he? He talks about the fact that the medieval man, if you were to show him, right, and you were able to get him, you know, get uh, the Hubble telescope or something and show him what the, the cosmos actually looked like and said, no, this is not a geocentric world. It's a, it's a heliocentric uh, or universe. Um, the medieval man would have said, Okay. So what? Whatever. Okay. Right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's what's the point. You know, that, that doesn't matter. Um, I think this, this quote from the discarded image might be good here. Okay. I'll, I'll just share it because it, it kind of gets to the idea of how the different people view, uh, whether modern or medieval view the cosmos. So Lewis says, whatever else a modern feels when he looks at the night sky, he certainly feels that he is looking out 
like one looking out from the saloon entrance into the dark Atlantic or from the lighted porch upon dark and lonely moors. But if you accept the medieval model, you would feel like one looking in. The earth is outside the city wall, and when the sun is up, he dazzles us and we cannot see inside. Darkness, our own darkness, draws the veil and we catch a glimpse of the high pumps with the vast lighted concavity filled with music and life. And looking in, we do not see, like Meredith's, uh, Meredith's Lucifer, the army of unalterable law, but rather the revelry of insatiable love. We are watching the activity of creatures whose experience we can only lamely compare to that of one in the act of drinking, his his thirst delighted yet not quenched. For in them, the highest of faculties is always exercised without impediment on the noblest object, without satiety, since they can never completely make his perfection their own, yet never frustrated, since at every moment they approximate to him in the fullest measure of which their nature is capable. Mm. So this gives a complete um, different view of not just the what the cosmos looks like, you know, but how it's interpreted, how we would view it, and what its significance, what its meaning is, like the map you described with the the journey to the to the Holy Land. Right. So let's talk a little bit about then how does our view of the cosmos inform education, or why is it important, and in, in what way is it related to education? So we believe that there is a certain kind of cosmos. There's only one, and there's one king of this cosmos, and it works a certain way. It um, it, it acts a certain way. It means something, right? It not only means something, but it tells a story. Okay, good. And I think that's a, a really important thing to unpack because your education is telling your kids a certain story. Mm -hmm. um, and so, I, I, so we are in a place. Our cosmology tells us that, and our cosmology tells us something in the nature of, of the nature of the world. So God has given us this world, right? We have the creation mandate. Um, we have the great commission, mm -hmm. right? So this world is ours. And I take my son upon a hill to look out on a valley. And I say, all of this has been given to us. Right. And these are our sheep. And here's how you're going to tend the sheep. I'm not going to let another man who believes a lie about this universe to teach my kid to tend sheep, although he'd be capable of it. No, why not? Why, why couldn't that man teach your, your kid how to tend sheep? Why couldn't he teach them how to shear them and where they go? And why not? Right. Well, that's the situation a lot of Christians find themselves in now. Mm -hmm. And then they have to work against it because the entire cosmos fits within every subject. Right. If you study chemistry, the cosmos is in that. If you study the poetry of Illinois in the 1890s <laughs> or whatever thumbnail subject you want to study, the cosmos is in that. That is sounding very Aristotelian. Isn't it? Yes. Just though. <laughs> Just wait till I start, start talking about essence and uh, <laughs> accidents. Yeah. And, but, you know, the, the so the, in, in fact, we find ourselves in a position where other people who tell our kids lies about the world are teaching our kids how to herd sheep. Mm -hmm. And we're like, okay, that's fine. As long as you understand some, that this Valley is ours. Mm -hmm. God gave us this Valley. We'll, we'll let someone else who says this Valley is not ours teach you about how to look after sheep. I should be the one teaching my kid how to look after sheep or someone else who believes the same thing about this world, right? Like we are, we, we all know that God gave this Valley to God's people. And now 
here's why you take care of the sheep, right? There's no way to divorce a technical teaching right. from the, from the cosmos, from the fact that we are in this universe. So I don't want a liar. I don't want someone who, who is a, an enemy, frankly, mm -hmm. to be the one teaching my kid how to look after our sheep. Well, well, kind of riffing off your, your sheep illustration there, there's, there's another element too. When you have someone who believes that that belongs to them and, and they're, you know, lying about it or uh, they don't understand who the real owner is, it's, it's a different kind of uh, teaching is going to happen, right? That's right. Um, and they're going to teach more about, you know, they, they might be able to show you, okay, this is how you shear them. This is how you, you know, this is how you birth, you know, they birth. And this is how, you know, all the things that go with sheep hurting. <laughs> I don't know what We're such is. experts. <laughs> yes. uh, but, but the idea that one person might ask somebody who doesn't know whose valley it belongs to, um, may talk about what can we do with the sheep, right? right? What are all the, how can we progress? How can we, how can we make more money? And out that's of, exactly what happens in, right. in pagan classrooms. Yes. Of course it does because yes. they're teaching. Right. Well, and you're going to, you're going to talk about what we call those normative questions about how, how do we tend sheep? How do we care for them? It's not about what can we accomplish? What can we get away with? What are we allowed to do? But you're going to say, what's the best? What is good, true, and beautiful yes. about this thing? Everything has a telos. Right. Right. And, and pagans, a lot of pagans operate in the world with no telos. There's just technique. Correct. Right. And, it's that, and that is utterly dehumanizing. Now, some people do try to act with some kind of some kind of goal in mind. Right. And then it might be that, um, you know, with with the advancement of uh, with 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 progress, we'll just use a very general <laughs> and hateful term with progress. We will be able to further and further minimize slavery. Right. Where we, mm. we, we technology will be able to free us. Right. And, you know, there is the built in lie there, which I, I won't unpack, that they're trying to enslave you right. and that to a certain a certain degree, technology and technique can enslave you. Well, right? and not not to completely, you know, use up all of our time with Lewis or, or you know, yeah. exhaust him. But he talks about the idea that when when uh, in, in the name of progress, when when man tries to conquer nature, um, all he does is leverage nature. One one group of people leverages nature in order to uh, conquer another group of people. So you're, right. you're trading one kind of slavery for another when you approach yes. it that way. Now, a Christian education, an mm -hmm. education that is consistent with the cosmos, right? Right. So this is why we're talking about cosmology. Mm -hmm. A Christian education is one that is always freeing, mm -hmm. right? Um, and, you know, we've talked at length about how making that a classical education is the best way to achieve that. But a, a Christian right. education is a freeing one. A Christian education is a freeing one whether you're wearing a toga and sandals or whether you're wearing an airtight space suit on a Mars colony 400 years from now, right? Or today when you have a device in your pocket that can carry you to the moon and back. Sure. Right. So, you know, it doesn't matter what, you know, if you're, if you're planting your garden using a hoe or whether you're using hydroponics on a spaceship, <laughs> right? You can be free if you are properly educated, that's what it's always been about. And there is nothing in the pagan agenda to free, except to free us from the curse to work. And that is hateful because that in itself is slavery. 
work is a good thing. That wasn't the curse. The curse right. is that work would be terrible. It would be, right? to- it would be toil. Exactly. Right. We, we are actually in, in a universe that is moving toward a place where work will be pure blessing and joy. Absolutely. Well, I think it would, you know, I don't want to take this too far a different direction, but I, th- I would add to what you said that a, a classical Christian education also frees a person to know the right kind of, kind of questions to ask about, you know, mm. so, so whether we're, you know, in a spacesuit or whether we're in a toga, that's one, that's one line or one linear way of, of measuring, you know, the, the Christian education is going to serve us as freemen, no matter whether, you know, however you're dressed. Right. <laughs> what I'm, what I'm trying, but what I'm trying to get to is the idea that it's also going to raise the question about whether we should or not. Right. Right. So it's whether we should, should, the, you know, even if we can produce this kind of technology, should we, yeah. should we produce half human, half sheep babies? Right. Should we do that? <laughs> right. Um, and yeah, and it goes, it goes back to the, um, I think Plato in the Republic asked the question or raised the idea that um, science, you, you could do anything with science and technology if you kill the sacred. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, and just since, since we've been actually kind of toying with the, the modern uh, progress paradigm a little mm-hmm. bit, right. Talking first about people in togas and then about people in spaceships and us in the middle, uh, you know, a couple of episodes back, we talked about what a lie that is. Right. And we talked about uh, a coming dark age. Mm-hmm. Right. And, this is this is what we want as Christians is regardless of our situation to be able to raise our children to be free in some places and times that may be easier than in others. Sure, well, we may be raising our children to be free and therefore fighters and have to fight. Right. No parent really wants that, but that's the best that we have right you know right now if that truly happens. But you know it it doesn't we we can be a light if we are properly educated in the, into the gospel. Um regardless of where we are. And in fact, after we establish the Martian colonies, it may be that another dark age comes, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, like it doesn't matter what the, like, you know, there's, there's a, a crazy narrative that moderns try to construct that, you know, keeps falling apart. But our narrative revolves around Jesus Christ, the God man. He has redeemed manness. Right. And so we as men, regardless of our circumstances can be, men and women of God. Well, that makes me think a little bit about uh, the Genesis story. And, and so when, when you're talking, we've been talking about these two different views of the cosmos, right? So there's a view that there's one kind of cosmos and then there's the view, the anti, you know, the, the anti view, if you will, of, of the kind of cosmos. And so it reminds me somewhat of what Augustine did with uh, in the city of God, what he did with the story of Cain and and I think there's an applicable analogy here, although this is talking about the city of God and the city of man um, is the way he treated it. I think there's something here as well. When we turn to the book of Genesis, Cain, after he kills Abel and he's unwilling to repent um, and, and God sends him out, the scripture tells us that Cain, in, in verse 16 of chapter 4, Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. And Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. And when he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. To Enoch was born Irid, and he goes through all of these um, names and and genealogy till we get to Lamech. Um, And Lamech took two wives, and the name of one was Ada, and the name of the other was Zillah. 
Adabor Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock, and his brother's name was Jubal, and he was the father of all those who play the lyre and pipe. Zillah also bore Tubalcain, and he was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron, the sister of Tubalcain, and uh, was Nama. And Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. So it's a strange little story here in the midst of the, you know, the, the Genesis narrative where Cain goes out from the presence of the Lord and tries to establish his own version of the world, right? A, right. a cosmos without God. I know this is a city, uh, but if the city, you know, if Plato can make the soul, you know, into a city, writ large, <laughs> you know, soul writ large, we'll make the cosmos, you know, as, as uh, indicative of this city. So Cain, in this city, in this way of doing things, doing life, this city doesn't have the presence of the Lord, and yet they have arts, they have right. uh, music, uh, you know, they have cattle ranching, so they've got commerce, um, metallurgy, and they have a sense of justice. Yes. Okay. They have a sense of what justice looks like, taking two wives, you're going to kill somebody for wounding you. Uh, this is not Rex, you know, or Lex Teleon, right? There's, this isn't an eye for an eye. This is, you know, two eyes for an eye right. you know, kind of sense of justice. And the reason I bring that up is because when we get to uh, John's um, epistle, he says in chapter two, I think it's verse 16, to we're not to love the world. There's that cosmos of the mm-hmm. things of the world. And he's not talking about the cosmos that God is redeeming, but he's talking about a world system there. The context is a world right. system of- That's what a cosmos is, right? A cosmos yeah, yeah. is a great organization. Correct. Yes. And that's the universe. And this is one without God. We're not right. to love the one that is- trying to be to emulate the real cosmos yeah. but without god not the cosmos founded on murder right right which right. of course multiplies right Correct. so abel is slain cities are founded there's nothing wrong with cities except that this city is supposed to replace god and establish the legacy of a line that hates god and then what happens murder multiplies upon murder Correct. you thought cain was bad i'm lamech um yeah right that's right yeah, and it, it really is. It, it, what's interesting, though, also is the presence of the arts in these places. Mm-hmm. Again, cities are not bad. We were waiting for a heavenly city. Sure. But we were trying to establish them without God, Towers of Babel. Now we have the arts. Arts, and by arts, I mean in the broadest sense, technique, technical things, right? Man's achievements. All that man can make. Right, exactly. Um, and that's wonderful. Except that it's without God. It's all founded on murder. That's the real problem, right? Playing the flute. <laughs> Isn't the, yeah. Is that, yeah, it's, it's yeah. playing the flute uh, to get away from God, right? Creating legacies. Like, you know, I have had my children. I've built this city. Now we are making these things and we'll be able to escape God by these means. That's the cosmos that John is talking about. That's the cosmos that we are warring against now that we are to hate. And we need to realize that it's it's that there's only one universe it's not like it's just a, a, there's a duality and we choose a side right one is an utter lie one is real one is exactly. true that is a yeah yes. and the other one is, is a, real yeah the other is a facade so we shouldn't send our kids right to cane city to get educated in the arts <laughs> no <laughs> or, or any techniques right but that's the thing that like technique enslaves right right if it doesn't have god 
right? Mm-hmm. It, because it's an impersonal force. You talked about the you know the impersonal forces of of the, of, and of the organization of the city of this of this lying cosmos. Uh, there's a writer named Jacques Ellul, a bit of an anarchist. I, I admit we've had our own conversations aside about some of the <laughs> sure. the European uh, Christian philosophers of the 20th century, but uh, he has some great things to say uh, in a couple of books. One is uh, the meaning of the city. The other is the technological society. Uh, both written in the 50s, I think. But he says in uh, Technological Society, a principal characteristic of technique is its refusal to tolerate moral judgments. It is absolutely independent of them and eliminates them from its domain. Doesn't that sound like what the world does? That's exactly. We, we It's not the normative questions of should it ought to be this way or right. is this good or bad? We don't ask those questions no. in the modern world. But it's because they don't exist in a moral universe, right? right? Our universe is, I mean, that's the only way we can see the world is morally. So continuing uh, with what he says, he says, technique never observes the distinction between moral and immoral use. It tends on the contrary to create a completely independent technical morality, which is that question you are asking. The question is not, ought we to do it for the, for modern man, mm-hmm. for the uh, person who lives in, who tries to live in this universe, that universe, the question is, can we do it? That's it, right? There's like a separate morality sim- just for technique. And the thing about, about technique, as, as Elul talks about it, is that it automatically enslaves us. No technique is possible when men are free. Technique requires predictability and no less exactness of prediction. It is necessary then that technique prevail over the human being. The individual must be fashioned by techniques. That is the opposite of what we teach and preach. That's right. Right. As Christians, we are saying you have been given dominion, right? Go out and steward, go out and be the master of these things. So it's not that the word technique is bad. He's using it technically. Sure, sure. That's <laughs> uh, kind of technical. In this book, right? But he is accurately describing how the world does technique, science, art, whatever man does. Because So those works enslave those men. We are the masters of our work. And we have to keep that order right. right? That's right. So, exactly. Yeah. And we have to teach our children. That's the order. That is the order that, that we're not the servant of that, but we are the masters of that. And, yes. and so, yeah, that's really good. So we've been talking about the arts and we've in, in, in part of um, an education is literature, you know, mm-hmm. um, reading good books, uh, what books tell good stories. Um, and we were talking about, uh, I think it was, uh, is it Gene Wolfe? The, oh, yeah. yeah. Yes. Um, at another point. And, and I thought that illustration uh, that, you know, the cosmos that he has there would be a really good illustration for what we're talking about in a sort of, um, you know, uh, like Tolkien said, fantasy is a new backdrop sometimes to look at the truth. Right. right? You know, so it stands out. Maybe you could talk about that a little bit. Yeah, I mean, and, and and Tolkien was certainly right because we have uh, we've we've bought into these other narratives and let them let them dominate, right? Not only these strangers, <laughs> right, but but our own stories. Like we try to fit the big story in this little lie, right. and it, and so we have to remind ourselves of what the world is really like. And fiction can remind us of what the world is really like, which is crazy to think about, but it's beautiful. It is beautiful, and often I think fiction probably is the best tool to teach us that. Yeah. Right. Well, you know, as we said, the, the, the cosmos is telling a story and that story helps us have our sense of place. So June Wolf has this, uh, this duology, this two book, uh, thing called the wizard Knight, mm-hmm. And it's a work of fantasy. Uh, it's, it's beautiful. I wept, whatever. Um, but he, he builds this whole universe 
that it all happens in. And it's important enough that although it's not common these days, there's an illustration of it at the beginning of his books so of, of this universe. And there are seven worlds in it. Elysion, Kleos, Sky, Midgard, Elfrich, Muspel, and Niflheim. And you'll see, you, you are already recognizing mm -hmm. that there's a mix of Greek and, and Nordic references in here. But the important part, especially, is Midgard, Middle Earth, Middle right? Earth, Tolkien's yep. Middle Earth. And the idea here, so there are three worlds above Midgard where humans live and three worlds below, right? And, you know, uh, levels of hell and all that, like that's a sure. classic literary <laughs> thing, right? But both going up and going down, uh, the fact that man is in the middle in this cosmos that Gene Wolfe has transmitted is, is a solid and solidifying thing. Man has a place. And if as man begins to leave that place to go either up or down, he becomes monstrous. The and he's the center. Also, and he's right? because yeah. he's the center. That's yeah. right. So the universe in a sense is about him. Mm -hmm. Right. But also if he, if he leaves, if he tries to go higher or lower, right. The beings in Elysian are the purest. Sure. But he's not made to be that. Right. And, and there, there are, there are evidences in the book of as creatures, not just humans, but giants and other creatures, as they begin to drift between the worlds, they become more monstrous, but really to, to, to just really drive that point home, Wolf, even in within Midgard, he makes it so that the farther from the, it's, it's a flat kind of uh, layout for physically, um, the further out you move from the center physically of the world, um, the, the more monstrous those humans are. They don't change shape, but they're cannibals or slavers. So he Wolf really makes the middle both horizontally within within Midgard. The middle is the place where things have a chance of being right. And then as you look up and down in the worlds and these beings with different natures, you know, humans have to stay in what their place is to be who they ought to be. And there's something fundamentally Christian about that. Now, that's not an accurate, an accurate mm -hmm. in quotes, right? Sure, sure. <laughs> uh, a version of what our world is like. But he was trying to send a certain, a particular message uh, of a cosmology that we have now let go of. A cosmology in which we know that we are in this place for a reason. Correct. And this is where we should live our lives. And this is where we should have our achievements. And dare we say it, the story and therefore the universe is about us. I love that as you describe that, that there's both a middle, right? Because he can go up or down. And then yep. there's the center and the periphery. Yes. yes. So the periphery is just, can be just as monstrous as, you know, the, the going up or down, right? right? The, the top and bottom. And, and it's a completely moral universe. Right. Right. So telling this story about the universe, about man being the center, I, I would add to that the fact, I, I think, you know, classic Christianity understood this. We don't tend to talk as much about the incarnation as we do about the death, burial, and resurrection. Right. Okay. And and I think there's a reason for that, but I do think the incarnation shows us something here, right? That yes. man is the center. I mean, that Christ became man. Right. That the second person the Godhead becomes man to redeem man says something. Yeah. Well, that, that's exactly right. It, it says something cosmological. Correct. And, uh, you know, I think that there are, I think every time we have said in this podcast uh, that it's about us or that man is the center of the universe, there have been listeners who have cringed, sure. right? Because there's that reaction that that's just embedded into us. But that's how far we've gotten from a place where we can just assume 
Mm-hmm. When we're saying all that, it's all under God because we've lost our sense of place. Well, right? like God made all this. It's all for God's glory. The universe is yeah. about mankind. Like this cosmos was made for us and it's all in God's story. It's all for God. That, I mean, that's actually the mantra of the uh, Christian humanists of, you know, the, the 14 and 1500s. And I'm not talking about uh, the Italian humanists, right? So there was, there was a, uh, so there was the, you know, it, the, the lower part of Europe um, had a, a much more man as the measure of, of things. And right. I think that's where a lot of people get the idea, you know, that, that causes them to cringe. But north of the Alps, when you get up into Europe, when you have people like Erasmus and and um, I love just as an aside that you were like north of the Alps when we get up into Europe. Like, <laughs> I mean, just, I mean that being sort the, of the a, rest of Europe. Yeah, yeah. Back. I just, I just, I just have this image in my mind that divides these two groups of humanists. It's a huge right. division. It's immense. Sure. I'm going to let you unpack it. I, yeah. I just, just enjoying the, the picture of you telling an Italian he's not European. It's like, listen, dude, well, the history of your country. I'm sorry. Upper, upper European and. Uh, That is my bad. I should not have derailed you like that. No, no, no. That's hilarious. So just the idea that um, those in the North were much more focused on on biblical translation and and keeping man as the center, as the middle of things, where it did get off the rails a little bit in in the Italian Renaissance where, you know, uh, we kind of assume some things and then they, you know, kind of get carried away with making man the measure of things. Um, And and different people have different opinions about how far that actually went. Uh, But in the North, it was completely different. And I think that's the kind of uh, man being the measure of things or or man being the center of things we're talking about. Right. And it's a focus, as you said, on the incarnation. Right. It surely means something. It does. Not just soteriologically. Right. That the second person of the Trinity became a man. Entered into his own creation. Wow. And became, yeah, that's yeah. huge. That's super huge. Okay, so we've been talking lots of philosophy, mm. and I hope— Wait, are we about to get practical? I think we need to. <laughs> <laughs> so, so how do we move this down um, into, um, you know— you know, down, putting the jelly on the bottom yeah. shelf, as they say, right? I think how we should we? focus on the idea of the center— Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, there, there are, we, we know what the center is, mm-hmm. right. But there are people out there who are trying to tell us that they are who the ones who established the norm and Christians are fringe. We're right? they're on the, the periphery free. of civilized, That's, you know, like <laughs> we're the alternate choice. Right. right. Well, with the barbarians, honestly. Yeah. That's a Scythian. <laughs> <laughs> So there was, uh, we were talking before about this article. Um, I mean, I, I don't put a lot of stock in the Huffington Post. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're so wise. <laughs> uh, I say that a little sarcastic, but anyway, um, so, but. Uh, it, it actually is better that it comes from a source like this. What yes. you're about to say, like it needs, it, it's better that it comes from a source like this because it illustrates our point. Yes. So there was an article, uh, I think last week that came out um, in the Huffington Post. And the, the, it's in a, the political column, but it, it says these textbooks in thousands of K-12 schools echo Trump's talking points. And my purpose in bringing this up isn't really political at all, although we know that it, you know, eventually works its way there. But in the midst of this article, they argue that 
it's the Christian alternate history, the Christian alternate view of reality that is driving the insurrection, the division in the country. And one quote here. Go ahead. You were- I was just going to say, I think the headline's adorable because <laughs> it's, I mean, I, when I homeschooled as a kid, I used a Becca. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, it's not us echoing Trump. It's Trump echoing us, Echo- if anything, if anything. If anything. But that's a total true. aside. <laughs> well, and they they mentioned three. There, there's there's Abeka, uh, Bob Jones Press, and yeah. then Accelerated Christian Education. I mean, they could have tomorrow. they could have mentioned seventy seven. Sure, there there could have been a, a bunch of them. But they it could says, have mentioned Kepler. <laughs> <laughs> Trump's echoing Kepler. Kepler. <laughs> we found that all three are characterized by a skewed version of history, uh, and a sense that the country's experiencing an urgent moral decline that can only be fixed by conservative Christian policies. I would say values, but uh, (laughs) language uh, used in the textbooks overlaps with the rhetoric Christian nationalists, often overtones of nativism, uh, militarism, and racism uh, as well. And it goes on to say more things just like this, but basically we are the center. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. These freaks are outside the pale they're, they're on the periphery calling the periphery the center. Or, right. or they're, they're actually, they're not even on the periphery. They're, no, they're, they're in another, they're in, they're in another, another world. Yeah. They're, yeah, they're in a world of pure imagination. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I started to sing it and uh, I didn't hit the tune because I realized this is, uh, I had a mental check of this is supposed to be a serious academic podcast. One does not sing on the consortium. And then I half sang. You should just whole sing. You should just <laughs> uh, come with me. Anyway, yeah, that's the, the, they they're deluded, of, you know, of course, and we should not expect them not to behave the way they are. What we are trying to tell you, the listener, is they have a, a story. They're constantly re scrambling it, tr- constantly trying to to redefine things, but they are going to tell us that we are on the outside when we know that's not true. We are at the center. We are where we ought to be. Right. You know, give or take a few miles. <laughs> well, <laughs> but, we're, but, we're veering quite a right. bit. You know, but, 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 but we are, we are, we are living our lives to be faithful to Jesus Christ. We are building Christendom, Christian civilization. We are, we are, we are being a part of the church and all of this puts us in the center of creation. This is what God wants from us. Uh, our enemies are going to do what they do, but what boggles the mind is that some Christians might say, okay, those people can go ahead and, and teach us. Well, and I'm going to be a little pointed, I guess, at this do point. It. Okay. Because the idea that we are sending our kids as Christians to these institutions that tell the lie that they're, they're framing this false narrative that they are the center and that to believe, you know, what, uh, the core confessional Christian, you know, narrative is, uh, is the, you know, a, an alternate universe or, or on the periphery. Yeah. Why would we send our kids to be trained up by those and then wonder yeah. why there's apostasy, why there's confusion. Well, and you're talking directly. Uh, I mean, you're talking to a whole lot of Christians, but mm-hmm. you're specifically uh, calling out really the the Christians to say, well, no, the schools are a mission field. You're telling me, let's say your kid only takes one class mm. from, from a government school, from people who think this way, right? And that class is woodworking or that class is algebra like they're they're they're, the techniques of those things the teacher is totally capable of passing on and your kid of absorbing but you're sending your kid into a world 
where he will be told you're a freak. Your parents are freaks. The world is not like that. In fact, if you're not wicked, your parents are wicked for raising you like yeah, this. Yeah, it's mental That's abuse. That's all there. That's right, exactly. You and can't just separate those things and, and just it's say, not oh, subtle. it's just a woodworking class. Right, and it's not subtle It's anymore. not subtle at all. And to call it a mission field, um, you know, I want to just say this. I know that there are sincere yes. Christian parents who I have particular just, friends in mind, actually, when I say that. Okay. And I know that there are sincere Christian teachers teaching in yes, that environment. that's right. Okay. That's right. So, so this, you know, with a, that caveat, understanding that it's like sending a, to send your child to the, to that institution to be trained is like sending a canary amongst the sparrows to teach them how to sing. Right. Because the canary is only going to come back chirping. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It, it doesn't work. Yeah. Um, and, and it's, it's not only that it doesn't work on a practical side, but now you're confusing because you're putting them under the slavery of an institution that, or under an institution that is enslaving them to a way of that's thinking right. that's completely false. Because it enslaves all its subjects. That's right. Let's make that clear. It right. Does. It's not just, it's not just your child. That's what those systems do. Yeah. I mean, there's only true freedom in Christ. I mean, we, we could actually have this podcast go on for 17 hours. Yeah. We so can, let's, we let's not, but I mean, really like alarm bells, you know, I mean, it, it's, it's, it's a, it's something I, I feel passionate about. I know you do as well. Um, and our teachers do as well. They, they want to help Christian families raise their children in the right universe. Right. Well, we need to wrap up, but I, you know, I, I, I feel like we're, um, as we are wrapping up, as we're closing up this episode, I think it's, it's important, um, to realize that we are at a very crucial time. Yes. I, I believe where it's not subtle any longer. It's, it's becoming, um, really the lines are being drawn, um, in ways that we've not seen in, in this country anyway, for a very long time. And I'm not trying to be alarmist, um, but, and this has been going on for a very long time, yeah. but at the same time, this, there is more opportunity for a parent to actually have the support and the help to actually, um, you know, to educate their children as they ought to under the Lord. So going back to, we were talking about, there is, um, you know, the, the minion mandate that God has given man, that's the center of the universe. That is the universe. And that's the mission that that's the progress, yeah. right? If there's progress, that's the progress. And I believe the great commission is an extension of that, mm -hmm. you know, um, you know, as we are now, you know, filled with the spirit in, in terms of being in Christ, we're going out to disciple the nations to bring them into under, this universe. Yes. Into this right universe, yes. freeing them, right? Freeing them from the slavery. Come do good work. That's right. Yeah. So I guess I just want to leave it with that, that classical Christian education um, is an it's, extension of the gospel. And it's, it it's, it's missional, right? We're it not, is missional. We're not, you know, uh, I, I know that you just had a perfect close of the podcast, but no. we're not, we're not telling you not to send your kids out as missionaries. We're saying raise them first. Right. That's all. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah. Get and then them. get them out there. Let's let's proclaim the gospel. Absolutely. Well, this has been a good episode. Um, I know we could have gone a lot of other directions and <laughs> and I mean we you know, any one of these could have been a, a big rabbit trail. But thanks for joining me today and and for this discussion and um till next week. So long everybody. <laughs>